If you take your Bible and please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We have just uh, finished chapter 1 of this incredible letter found in the New Testament. And uh, Paul in chapter 1 is just poured out praise to God. Saying, this is what God has done. This is God's work. What is God's work? Class, what is God's work in chapter 1? Salvation. That's his work. It's God's work. That's what he's drilling into us. Okay? And he's just, you know, this is profuse praise to God. He just, it's like, in, as we've seen already in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, he cannot stop. He's just like over, overflowing with praise to God for God's work in salvation. Okay? Now, with that thought, we're turning to chapter 2. And now Paul is, is wanting to show us, and I've kind of given it the title this way, What's so amazing about grace? Let me ask you. You know the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a pretty nice person like me. What is it? Saved a wretch like me. Okay, and so we sing that. But you know what? I'm, here's what I, I'm concerned about. That Christians don't really understand just exactly how amazing it is. We rattle off the words to the song. We rattle off the words to our memory verse. But it's like somehow we are missing out on the richness of the word amazing. What is amazing in our lives? You know, a lot of us are just amazed at Hunter Pence's catch in right field. We're amazed at that. We're amazed at the catch in the end zone. That's the diving catch from someone. We're amazed at those things. We're amazed at stuff that happens around us. You know, uh, and it seems that it's more and more that it's people-oriented that we really get amazed about. I mean, come on, you've seen the Grand Canyon, no big deal. You've seen Yosemite, no big deal. I mean, we get, it's like, have you seen this? This is just amazing. Why is YouTube so popular? It's like all the stupid stuff that people put on, and we're amazed at the stupidity of people. That's what we're amazed about. But I wonder, are we really amazed at grace? I want you to think about that. I want that to be something that just latches on in your mind. We are a people who are more impressed with the temporal than the eternal. Do you know that you are made for eternity? Young and old, you are made for eternity. 
You weren't made for 60, 70, 80, 90 years of life. You were made for eternity. Okay? We're, but we're more impressed with the temporal than the eternal. We're more impressed with popularity than character. I remember school days. You uh, old, old folks, you remember school days. You know, it's like, that's really, you know, a, 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 such a sway with young people. It's what's popular. It's what's popular. We're more impressed with that than one's character. We're more impressed with ourselves and our own accomplishments than we are with God and what He's accomplished in Christ. So that's what... If you're visiting here, this is what we want to be about. Is that we want to be a people that are more impressed with God, that makes much of God in Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to do, not just on a Sunday morning, but that's what we want to be encouraging about all week long, all day long, all night long. Is that we are making much of Jesus Christ and His grace. So it really helps you and I, to understand about what's so amazing about grace when we have a contrast. We're given a contrast. And so it really helps to see here's one extreme versus the other. Here's Phoenix, Arizona in the midst of summer, and here's International Falls, Minnesota in the winter. Extremes. (laughs) And this is what Paul lays out for us. Do you understand this? This is what Paul lays out for us. So, just how amazing is grace? Number one, in your outline, please, if you want to follow along with that outline that's in your bulletin, here we go. Number one, the extremely awful condition of man. The extremely, or if you want to say the absolutely awful condition. That's the point. It's an awful condition that God has saved us from. And a lot of times we don't go there. We just don't. um, Some people don't like the word wretch that saved a wretch like me. They'll say, no, no, no. I'm not that bad. I really am not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. But we need to understand what is it that God's saying? And so this is before God began to act in us as believers, because we're really, we're talking to believers here, and Paul is saying in chapter 1, and you. Notice that it continues on from chapter 1, okay? And Jesus, uh, and it, it, Paul is writing and saying in chapter 1, verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here's the condition. You and I, spiritually speaking, letter A, we're dead. Spiritually speaking, you're dead. Before Christ. Before you came to faith in Christ, you're dead. That's the condition you're in. According to God's Word, the definition would go something like this. Dead meaning what? Absolutely no response whatsoever to God and His call. You're dead. Do you understand that? You didn't come up with the idea of getting saved. If you're saved, if you're a believer, you did not come up with that idea. You were dead 
You're dead in what? In your sins and trespasses. So you're in that realm of trespasses. Trespasses is saying where God says, don't go there. Don't go there. No trespassing. That's the idea. Don't go there. But what do we all do? We go there. That's trespasses. You've transgressed. You've crossed over with your sin. And sin, what is sin? It says trespasses and sins or transgression and sin. What is sin? Sin is missing the mark. Everyone was supposed to hit the mark that God set there, but we can't hit it. No matter what we do, we cannot hit the mark that God put for us. What is that mark? Righteousness. You don't have enough righteousness in you. You do not have the righteousness that pleases God. Your righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags. You have no righteousness to please God with. You have a righteousness that might please me. It might please your mom and dad. It might please your neighbor. But you don't have a righteousness that pleases God. Do you understand that? That's what we need to get. We need to get this. But we are in that realm of trespasses and sin. So it's a matter of falling away and missing the mark. We're dead. We don't respond to God. There's no movement. It's like the dead dog on the side of the road. You can kick it. It's not going to move. Why? It's dead. Spiritually speaking, you are dead before God. God will call you, but (laughs) nothing's happening. But it's only God who can do what? Raise from the dead. And give you new life. So, but we don't want to go there yet. The first extreme that we're looking at is this awful condition of man. So, man is dead in his trespasses and sins. There's no seeking after God. If you're taking notes, just jot down Romans chapter 3. All of Romans chapter 3. You can read about it there. None does righteous. No, not one. Okay? Not only are we dead, but then quickly resulting from that deadness is, letter B, man is devious. Devious. What does it say? And you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which, look at this, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You walked in that way. Before coming to faith in Christ, that's the way you were walking and living your life. You were devious, meaning you strayed from the path that God laid out for you. You strayed from it. You're devious. And it's the ways of the world. Now, listen, especially young people, the ways of the world are very inviting. The ways of the world can be very exciting. The ways of the world can be very pleasurable. Very pleasurable. That's the catch. That's the trap. And we need to understand that. The course of this world. This is what people are dominated by because they're dead in sins and trespasses. They're dead to the things of God. And the word that he uses here, the ways of the world, is really the way um, some of your Bible translations say the course of this world. Okay? But it's, uh, it's the idea of the, the age. The age. In Galatians 1, verse 4, it says, 
it refers to the same word. It refers to the present evil age. Very uh, helpful writer and author, speaker. Maybe you've heard him on KNIS. He's now passed on. He's he's dead and gone, but he's he, you know he's with the Lord. His name is Martin Lloyd Jones. He wrote this. It is the outlook referring to the age that we're in. This world that we followed after before coming to faith in Christ. This world, he says this, it's the outlook. It's the mentality. It's the organization of life apart from God. Where God is shut out. And to be in the world means you are governed by the outlook and the mentality of the world. So that's the condition of man apart from Christ, of man and women, of children, whoever. They're apart from faith in Christ. This is their, their journey. This is their life. They're dead. Letter B, he's devious. And letter C, also deceived. Deceived. Let's keep reading. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Here's another way to call Satan out. Here's Satan. And mankind is deceived by the deceiver. He's the ruler of this age. That's why the Bible calls him the prince of the power of the age. He's the ruler of it. He's not almighty. He's not omnipresent or omnipotent he is a rebel against god and he deceives you and me okay satan uses the same old tricks if you mark down genesis 3 1 through 6 many of you are familiar with that where satan came as the serpent and tempted eve and through that eve was tempted through the the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life that's the that's the old secret of Satan. That's his his go-to move. He wants to use the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life to trap you in sin. And that's what he's done. He continues to do that. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15 through 17 tells us, here's the same old formula that Satan uses. To trip up people. And by the way, Satan doesn't, I believe, Satan doesn't need to do a whole lot to trip you up and to cause you and I to sin. It doesn't take a whole lot. Why? Because of our own choices. Our own desires. We go after it without a whole lot of Satan's prompting. Why? Because we're rebels. We're disobedient to God. That's our nature. Okay? So people are easily deceived. Have you, young people, if you've not yet been deceived by someone, <laughs> it kind of stings when it happens. It hurts. You feel betrayed. You feel cheated and all that. And you know what? It happens socially. And folks that have been around for the, uh, around the block for a while in life, you know it hurts financially. When someone hurts you financially, deceiving you. But you know, one of the biggest things that the Bible is concerned about is that we get deceived religiously. We're deceived religiously. And in the context of this passage, what we're talking about is um, you're deceived 
to think that you are good enough to earn God's merit. That you're good enough to earn God's uh, approval. There's not a one person here that can earn God's approval by your good behavior. And there are plenty of religions that are promoting that very song and dance number. You need to understand that. Most of you do, I think, understand it because we've preached about it here in the past. Religion is deceiving because religion keeps telling you, hey, you do good enough. You do good enough and God might just let you into heaven. And can anyone ever do good enough to to please God, to get into heaven? See, that's how we think of God as, hey, God's a good old guy. God's a good old guy. He'll let us into heaven. You know, it's that thing where, you know, won't he just out, you know, weigh out the, the good from the bad and say, ah, yeah, you made it. Come on in. Hey, come on, Nuggy. God doesn't do that. God does not do that. God is the perfect and righteous judge. And he will judge you. Even if you sin one time in your life, he will judge you and say, no, you, you haven't made it. You haven't met the mark of perfect righteousness. You must understand this. We not only are dead to God, we're devious, we've been deceived, and Satan has and continues to counterfeit God's work so that he would lead people astray. So any system of doing enough, of earning God's approval, is wrong. It's only by grace. Then letter D... We're debased. We are debased. We've lowered ourselves by following after the lust of the flesh and the lust of the mind. That's what he goes on to say. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. He throws everyone in. He throws everyone in. Everyone, okay? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here, under letter D, verse 3, it's that we are debased. In living for the lust of the flesh and of the mind, we lower ourselves, we degrade ourselves. From what? From God's design for your life. When you chase after your own agenda, when you chase after and live for yourself, you are debasing yourself you're you're degrading yourself from god's design from god's purpose and then we miss out on his glorious purpose for life when people go without christ they can be wonderful people uh, you know well regarded or whatever but they're missing out for the purpose that god designed them for and you know what there's people all over and we if we're not Careful and alert, we can go chasing after similar things. We chase after things and we are never satisfied with it. All the money in the world, all the power in the world, all the pleasure in the world, we go chasing after those things and we're never really satisfied. Until, what? We come face to face with Jesus Christ. 
Because he's the perfect man. He's the perfect God-man. And in him, we find our true delight. Our satisfaction is all about him. Enjoying him and worshiping him. So, these, you know, the chasing after the lusts and the desires of the flesh, we miss out on what God has planned for us. What does that result in? All, all of it comes down to this, where it's the asterisk in your outline on the front page, man is totally depraved. That's what the doctrine is about. The total depravity of man. Now, Christian, if you fail to understand this conclusion, if you fail in understanding the the depth to which we've gone, there's going to be difficulty in appreciating the grace of God. Do you get that? Do you understand that? That's what we're dealing with. We have Christians right here in this room. We have Christians all over where we just kind of yawn at God. Like, yeah, it's no big deal. We're familiar with God. No big thing. That's sad. That's sad for our Christian testimony. In other words, I'm not really that impressed with God when I'm not amazed over what He's done. But how can I be amazed over what He's done if I don't appreciate the depth from which He rescued me? Do you get that? And you need to understand that by how? Degrading yourself? No, by being in the Word. Be in the Word of God to understand the depths from which He saved you. This is God's declaration. You are a sinner. You deserve hell. You deserve separation from God. Even if you're the nicest person in this room. Why? Because we miss the mark. We miss the mark. We fail to see ourselves as God sees us. Typically, we think more highly of ourselves. So the terms like a wretch like me, we reject that kind of thinking. The idea of being totally depraved is is also rejected. That's silly. I mean, we got some really nice people in this world that make this world a better place. Right? You get that? Well, you know what? My vision is on those people and the standard that I keep for those people. Well, you're a nice person. Well, you're not that really, you know, you're not that, I I like this person better because I'm using my standard of goodness, my standard of righteousness. God doesn't give me that option with eternity. God says, here's my standard and his standard is be perfect. Anyone here been perfect? Nope. Me neither. So, we need to understand this. Now, as we we need to get this also, we assume that there is some level of goodness in us that merits God's word for God's approval. Okay, we all are essentially good. We've got that goodness in us, and given a chance, we can repair this messy world that we're in. That's what people think. If we, if you just give us a chance, we'll get together. What do you think the United Nations is about? What do you think the United Nations is about? Creating more war? No. Hey, let's get together. We can fix this problem. Well, it's not going to happen. And then along with that, listen to this. 
important. I think that the biblical doctrine of sin has effectively been erased from the public eye in our, in our lifetime. If you're 50 years and older, for certain, in our lifetime, the biblical doctrine of sin has been erased effectively from the public eye, and a lot of it has to do with psychology. Again, here's the subtle thing behind psychology. We can fix it. And if we can't fix it this way, we'll fix it with psychiatry. We'll add medicine to it. Now, I realize there are issues that need medical attention. I realize that. But all too often, there's a leaning on and a trust in man's effort to fix it. Okay? So... Now, having said all that, have we embraced psychology more than we've embraced the doctrine of the the truth of God's word? There's a challenge for us in that. Now, with this idea of what we said here, the extremely awful condition of man, point number one, is I believe this doctrine to be one of the strongest proofs of the Bible's truthfulness. Okay? The truthfulness of the Bible. There it is. It's report on mankind. Because it's not missing a beat. It's not missing a beat with what it says about our condition. Okay? And it's not to um, say we can do no good. You and I can do good. And we, can, we see that around the world. We do good. People do good. But now it's, again, what measurement, what standard am I using? If I use God's standard, no one does good. No, not a one. <laughs> okay. So look at verse 4. What's next? What's the first two words of verse 4? But God. So number two is, our point number two is the extremely astounding solution of God. It's the solution to our problem. And our problem is an awful condition. It's a, it's a horrible condition in God's eyes. So letter A, we consider the source. Consider the source, but God. Okay? <laughs> what does it tell us about God? God's the great turning point. Here's the great pivot of life, but God. And we turn and pay attention to God and we say, oh, what does it tell us about God? He is rich in what? He's rich in mercy. Okay? He, uh, mercy means that He withholds something from you. You're in the courtroom of life and uh, you're guilty and you deserve punishment, rightful, righteous punishment, yet God in mercy withholds that. He withholds punishment from you because of one person, your advocate, Jesus Christ, who stepped in. And save the day, as we say. He with God withholds wrath from those who are covered by the blood of Jesus. And then he's, it goes on to say in verse 4, it's because of His great love with which He loved us. And here's the great fountainhead of where grace and mercy flow from. It's because of His great love. Okay? And remember, God so what? Loved the world. And we've said it this way in the past. God did not feel warm and fuzzy about you. 
He didn't have a good warm feeling about it. Okay? He didn't have the burning of the bosom or whatever. He loved. He had action with his love and he sent Jesus. Okay? So it's out of his great love that we have this wealth of mercy that he's withheld his wrath from those who will run to the refuge known as Jesus. Jesus is our tower. He is our strong defense. He is the ark that we run into, just like the animals ran into Noah's ark and were saved. You and I run into the ark called of God to come and be saved. So we consider the source in letter A. Letter B, we consider the effects. The effects. Look at verse 5. Even when we are dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay? So verses 5 and 6 show us the effects. And there's three proofs that we have. Number one, new life. Each believer, I don't know who all is a believer in here, but each believer has new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Okay? If any man be in Christ, he is what? He's a new creature. All things are gone. Behold, all things are new. First, uh, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Okay? And by the way, I would ask you to write down this reference John 6 verse 63 and John 3 verse 3 John 3 says unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God and then later on he says in verse 7 you must be born again and that's meaning that spiritually you're dead that's what we've already covered and Jesus is saying you've got to be born again and only the Spirit, John 6, 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Okay? So, there's new life that He's given to us. He has made us alive together with Christ. And sometimes we don't even believe that. It's like we've got to be reminded of that. He has made us, believers, t- alive with Him together with, in Christ. Number two, He's given us a resurrected life. The effects of his, his solution is that given us new life and number two, resurrected life. And the Bible says here in verse five and six, and he raised us up with him. I like to think of this. He set you free. He has set you free. Just like with Lazarus. Lazarus was, was dead in the tomb. And this is a great picture, folks, of God giving new life without the help of Lazarus, without the help of you. <laughs> God, Jesus came to the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out, come forth. That's the picture of God giving new life to people dead in their sins. And that's what he did with Lazarus. Physically, literally, he did that. And that's what he's done for you spiritually. If you're a believer, he's given you new life. He's giving you resurrected life. He set you free. Colossians 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, are you a believer? If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is. Okay? Seek those things above. 
It's basically, I, you and I as believers need to develop this perspective of eternity more and more and more. What is your mind uh, banked on? Is it about the temporal or is it with heaven in mind? Take an afternoon sometime and read scripture about heaven. Read about heaven. I'm looking forward to go on a trip this week with my wife. We're going to scoot up to Oregon. You know, anytime I go to Oregon, it's like, why is it I get excited, anticipating? I'm seeing our kids and our grandkids. We are seeing. But far greater is, are you looking forward to heaven? Are you really? Really? If we, if we, t- if we took time to think about what the Bible says about heaven, not what the books at Walmart or the books at the Christian bookstore say about my experience of dying and going to heaven and coming back. I don't think so. I mean, I, Paul was saying he couldn't even express what happened about his vision of heaven. He couldn't even express it. So beware of those books on the market that tell you about some trip to heaven and coming back. Oh, please. Let the Bible speak about heaven and let that fill your heart. Some people say, oh, wait, wait, wait. I don't want to be so heavenly minded. I'm not any earthly good. Stop and think about that philosophy. Think that over. What does Jesus want? Does he want you to be like the robot? Remote control. I go to Sunday worship. I give. I sing. I do this. I teach Sunday school. All that. You know what he wants? Do you, do you get this? He wants your heart. He wants you to love him. He wants you to love him. I love, you know, we love our kids and our grandkids. We're excited. We're going. Yes. I feel like I've got to say it for the Whites and the Robertsons and, and all the others that have grandkids. I can't even list you all. You know, but we're excited. We're excited about going to heaven. Okay? A resurrected life. Then third, a consecrated life. It's not just, oh, here's it's so exciting. I got new life in Christ and a resurrected life. But number three, consecrated life. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. You know what that is? That's being set apart. What does being set apart mean? It means living a holy life. That you're growing in holiness. You're, you're wanting that. Why? Because you've been set apart. Okay? You've been set apart. Second Timothy chapter 2. Mark that down if you'd like. It's a great text. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 says this. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who names the name of the Lord, everyone who's a Christian, is to abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, 
He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. You have a consecrated life? Some of us have our ticket punched for heaven, but we aren't thinking about the consecrated life. We're not concerned about turning away from evil, turning away from wickedness. We're saying, hey, it doesn't matter. I'm going to heaven. No, it does matter. The Bible just told us. He wants you to be a a useful vessel, an instrument in your hand. Men, I, I speak to you men. There's a plague in our society. Men, we say that we're believers, but we aren't leading our families in spiritual things. Men, when are we going to stand and lead for Jesus? That's what he wants. Your, your wife is longing for that. The churches that I've been to in the past are similar. I, I, you get the picture of it. You realize that men just don't want to really stand up and take a stand for Christ in their home. I want to encourage you in this way. We need that here at Parkside. We need more. I'm not saying we have a a terrible lack. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we need more. We need more men to stand for for the cause of Christ at home, at work, and here at church. Okay. So, the extremely astounding solution... We consider the source, letter B. We consider the effects. It's new life. It's resurrected life. It's consecrated life. Letter C, consider the prospects. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7 back in Ephesians 2. So that in the ages to come. He's talking about eternity in the ages. It's plural. The age. Not just the age, but the ages. Here's eternity that he's talking about that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What's the subject there? What's he directed it at? He's not directing it at saying, oh, I want to have so-and-so stand up and, and tell us about your, your coming to faith in Christ. No, he wants to show forth his glories of his grace. And you and I are ended up being the trophies of his grace. But it's more about Him. It's more about His glory and His praise. That's what the verse tells us. In the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace. Now, this is a very unique category. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to be a part of this category, this department. God, listen, God can show forth His power in eternity... But we see that now in, in speaking and creating, you know, the mountains, the, the universe, what, what power God has displayed. But that's from his word and he just, he made it. And his holiness, he could, you know, we could look at the category of the angels, the angels of God. Holy, holy, holy. They know how to worship and they're holy creatures. But, you know, listen. The category of grace will only include people, redeemed sinners. It's not going to be about the angels. The angels don't get it. It's going to be about people who have been redeemed 
by his grace. So this is how we are to live in light of his grace. First John three, verse three says this. Beloved, now we are children of God. It is not yet uh, it is not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is a part of uh, readiness for heaven, if you will. All for his glory, all for his grace. Now, we come to closing things down now, Okay. Here's what we said. Here's an extreme, extremely awful condition of man. We've got the tendency to gloss over it and say, it's not that bad, but let God's word speak to the issue. Then secondly, we've got this extremely astounding, amazing, there it is, amazing solution that God has brought about. And we consider him in this regard first. He's the source of it. Here's his great love with which he has loved us. And we come to point number three, the extremely critical, I call it affirmation. Or maybe it's a profession. The extremely critical profession. Profession of faith. There are no options given for what kind of level of Christianity you buy into. It's like, uh, you know, you, you go to a football game and uh, you get seats up in the nosebleed area because why? That's the cheap seats. But if you're down at the field zone, it's like, oh my, oh, baby, wow. That's really, ooh, that, I mean, you must be on the team or something. You know somebody on the team, oh, wow. And all too often, that's how we think about Christianity about the family of God. Oh my goodness. Uh, you know, Simi Travis is really, you know, she's, she's right there with God. Or Karen Duncan is, is even farther up near, you know, or, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like we think that way. But that does not mean that we, hey, on the other hand, just, hey, it doesn't matter. Don't matter. I can hang back, hang loose, and live however however I want to. No, he wants you to grow in your faith and look more and more like Jesus in your behavior, in your communications with people. So this affirmation in point number three is not a matter of, oh, what level do I want to be on? No, you're in the family of God. Many assume that it's just an acknowledged affirmation. That's okay, right? No, it's not just acknowledged. That's not what Jesus taught or allowed. That's not what he pushed for. The proper affirmation is one of adoration and affection in your life for Jesus Christ. Do you recognize the depth that he went to save you? If it's just a matter of saying, well, yeah, I was kind of a bad person. Well, then we limit the appreciation factor and the adoration factor of his grace. And thus we, if that's the case, then we've got people that sit back and just kind of, you know, we're comfortable and we yawn and we, you know, sit back. No big deal. 
But when we understand the extreme issue, it ought to motivate you, my friend. It ought to motivate you to say, I want Jesus. He's my Lord. Now I want Him. I love Him and I want more. It's not about a religion. It's about Jesus Christ and you and I understanding His grace is intended to amaze you. And that's what He accomplished at Calvary. But if you have... if, if But you have to see yourself as God sees you. So look into the book. Look into the mirror of God's Word. And let it speak to you of your condition. Lloyd... Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and we'll, we'll close with this statement. If you want to know the greatness of God's power, you have to realize the depth of your sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being such a great and mighty God. We thank you for your patience with us and your love demonstrated to us. Dear Lord, we pray that we would be a people growing to love and appreciate you more and more. We confess, Lord, that we have set our eyes all too often on the things of this life, the temporal things, the things that just bring a a temporary pleasure. We chase after things that just don't really satisfy like Jesus does. And we admit that. We pray that you would grow us to be a people that lift up praise to your name Because of your great grace, you saved us. Lord, I pray that you would save more. The people that are here, dear Lord, you know them. You know their hearts if they're not saved. We pray that they would respond to the call, the only call that can raise them from the dead. We pray, Lord, that you would bring this about in your sovereign, loving, wonderful way. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And everyone said, Amen.